Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we are broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is WFMP-LP Louisville. Uh, We broadcast on 106.5 FM on your radio dial. And if you want to find out a little bit more about our station, you can go to forwardradio.org and click on a button. We're live streaming. You can listen to us anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. So, uh, folks, uh, we've got a great guest for you today. We've got David Hempson from the Republic of South Africa. He was born and raised under apartheid and took part in the anti-apartheid struggles. Uh, He was a labor organizer in South Africa. Now he resides in the United States, and he's going to share with us what he has learned from the many struggles and experiences that he has had. So, uh, David, welcome to our show. Okay. It's great to be on the uh, the K.A. Owen show, and I'm looking forward to... uh, putting out some ideas and some experiences and hopefully, uh, you know, spreading some ideas which, which get a response because no matter where we are, whether it's in South Africa or in the United States, you know, we are united in the spirit of wanting to have uh, freedom and real genuine equality in our countries. So, David, some people in the audience may not know that the whole concept of apartness or apartheid was actually borrowed from Jim Crow in the United States uh, and implemented in the uh, late 1940s in South Africa. So what was it like to be raised under that system? Well, you know, when you're young and you come from a kind of privileged uh, background, as I did, it, uh, it, 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 it was a little strange. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a suburban place, which is incredibly beautiful. And I used to play with uh, all the kids in the neighborhood. And, but it was strange in the sense, but I didn't know it then. Um, because at that time, there were more men, black men who were employed in domestic service than than black women. And actually, I learned how to iron, iron clothes when I was about eight years old from a, a black person who came from Mozambique, a marvelously tall, gentle fellow who showed me how to uh, operate an old steam iron that we had at the time. I can still remember putting coals in it. Uh, and so gentle and nice with me, he would sort of talk to me as a little boy. And, uh, you know, that, that was my sort of domestic uh, understanding of how things were. Uh, my father was worth building. He was an architect and a builder. There were always uh, black workers, you know, on, on our, in our house, were, you know, just outside building the out, out parts and, and actually doing that. And they would cook up our breakfast at about 10 o'clock uh, in the morning. And they would always invite me to come around and, and they liked to have a little boy with them and tease me and talk to me. And I would sit down and, uh, you know, and eat with them. And although my mother would be worried what I was doing, but they would just laugh. So it was, a, from a young boy's perspective, 
was quite, I, I don't know, a bit extraordinary. But at the same time, there was always the threat of violence out there. Um, so, you know, you would see, you know, people that you knew and, and, and as workers, you know, coming in with, um, you know, blood on their heads. And, you know, I'd, I'd ask, you know, what, what's going on here? Uh, sometimes it would be stick fighting between boys, but other times it would be the police beating them up and then finding, you know, they'd come home and my mother would fix them. Uh, you know, it was kind of a rude awakening to, you know, what a, what really apartheid was, was like. But, I, you know, from a, a young age, I felt that there was something deeply wrong in the society. I went to a, a church um, where there were only white people, but everywhere around, I could see black people and white people. So, you know, what was going on? So, you know, as a boy, I would listen to the marvelous uh, sermons we would have in the Methodist Church, but I'd wonder, what happened here? Because you would hear these beautiful songs and stories of love and kindness and so forth, and then right outside, you know, there was nothing. So nothing like that, in fact, the very opposite. So I, I had a very skeptical view of, of white society as a boy. When I got to university, um, I participated in the National Students' Union. You know, we had uh, all kinds of activities there which uh, were anti-apartheid in, in a kind of formal way. You know, we wanted to have black and white students at campus but every day there were further regulations which restricted the access of uh, black people uh, to universities. Then they called them white universities. They weren't white universities. They were meant to be available for, for all, but increasingly the uh, regime defined it, um, them as white universities. And out of these debates and struggles we had, you know, I met some marvelous people. Uh, I remember going to my first uh, conference of a national students' union, and there were white, well, there were white compartments uh, where I was, and there were black compartments right at the back of the train. And uh, you know, we wonder what what's going on here. So we would try and, and meet up. We'd meet up, you know, between the two wagons, sometimes talking, and then we would just go in there before the uh, railway police would come and separate us again. And then out of that, uh, you know, out of those discussions, uh, you know, I found, uh, you know, I met people like Steve Biko, um, you know, marvelous people who would tease me and say, you know, the first time you're sitting down and becoming a human being, you know, he always had a kind of ironic sense, like to play with you, with a gentle soul. And, uh, you know, we would discuss, you know, what we would uh, do. Uh, you know, so, you know, I learned uh, as soon as I was involved in the student room, but, but a bit before then, you know, just what apartheid meant, uh, where black and white students were kept rigorously apart, and then where we tried to work together at an institutional level at the university or in political work, um, you know, we would, we would find that uh, all hell would break loose. But let me just tell you something about Steve Biko. Um, I remember one of the train trips we took, uh, we had to wait at a station, a place called Bloemfontein. It's one of the big cities of uh, South Africa. We had to wait there for about five hours before we got a train to connect to take us down to Cape Town. 
And uh, Steve was a restless soul. <laughs> and he said, well, what are we doing all this time? What are we going to do? Sit around, just, uh, you know, wait. Why don't we take a march to the local university? Now, that local university was a white university, which was totally hostile to integration and uh, the discussion with uh, black students. And I said, Steve, we're going to get in big trouble here. <laughs> we'll have the police on our tail in no time. He said, ah, oh, don't worry. Let's, let's try it. So we marched out to get to the university, which was a little bit out of town, actually. And before we knew it, we had about, I think about, uh, first of all, about two cars, and then about six cars, and about ten police, police vans around us. <laughs> And, and they wanted to know where we were going, what we were, what we were trying to do. And Steve said, I want to meet the leaders there and we can talk. We want to unite this country. And uh, the police would say, well, we are not going to allow you to do that. You're just going to have to stay here or walk back to the uh, train station. Eventually, the uh, student leadership of that Bloemfontein University uh, turned up all in their suits and ties. <laughs> they, didn't ex they didn't know quite what to expect. And uh, Steve treated them very courteously. And he said, uh, you know, we'd like to open up discussion. Of course, they were so embarrassed, they didn't know what to say. But uh, we were lucky we didn't get beaten up by the uh, police, as I thought would happen. We made our way back. It didn't succeed. But that was Steve, always wanting to put his hand out and give a, a, a shake of friendship uh, and open up the discussion between black and white, you know, so we could determine our future. But that wasn't to be, as I think everybody knows, that uh, Steve ended up uh, organizing uh, the black students' movement, um, engaging with the young black uh, students in school and more at the university with some fantastic essays. I mean, remember, you know, he was a young man. He was still in his 20s when I knew him. And uh, behind the time he was 30, and he ended up being interrogated and then beaten to death. He had a set of essays which are, you know, excellent. I mean, really, you know, something which is worth reading today uh, to, to try and understand the complexities of the answers to the question of racism and uh, black consciousness, the consciousness among black people that they were human beings and able to think and to be able to speak for themselves and to be able to fight for their own destiny. I mean, for those ideas, I mean, he was put to death in the most uh, tragic way. Was anyone ever punished for uh, Steve Biko's death? Well, I, I can't believe it. But, you know, I uh, recently went uh, on my Facebook and put up a picture, you know, of Steve and family and, uh, you know, said, what happened here? Because I never followed all the legal details. We had something called the TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea was that uh, black and white would get together. On the one side, we had the Nationalist Party, which was a proto-fascist party of racism. But they came to the table. On the other side, we had the African National Congress, and the people's organizations. And out of that, well, the idea was that uh, we would tell the truth to each other and uh, confess, and uh, there would be reconciliation. 
But actually, what it was was really a deal between, uh, let's say, you know, the the black, the, the, the well, for the black organisations, but with the uh, white ruling class, which decided it had to take a step back and to concede political power because the country was becoming ungovernable. They were unable to rule in the same way. So they sought out a way out of it through negotiations. And it was touch and go when those negotiations would work. But eventually they did and there was a settlement. Now the idea of, well, where did you get economic, where did you get both political and economic justice out of that? Well, that was meant to go to the TRC. You put your case as an individual and, uh, you know, you would, you would uh, get confessions from the killers or if they didn't confess and apologize, the idea was then that they would be prosecuted. Well, none of them really apologized uh, sincerely. I mean, they might have said, look, I'm sorry, I can see I'm going to get 20 years, so I'm sorry. But um, rather what they did was to say uh, that, you know, it was someone else's fault, uh, they were following orders, you could imagine what they, you know, came up with. Um, and at the end of the day, we had uh, some of the most uh, despicable murderers uh, getting off and, uh, you know, saying they were sorry but without meaning it. And, um, and uh, imagine it. I mean, the, the murderers of Steve Baker, and I think there were five policemen involved, um, you know, got away with it. One of them is now dead, but the other four are still alive and well. And, uh, you know, there they are living a comfortable life after killing one of our most exalted uh, sons. Uh, you know, it, it, it hurts me even to, to describe it. I can't believe it. Uh, but I never followed these things in detail. I thought, well, you know, justice will take its course, but it didn't. I mean, one of the things I have to report is that, uh, you know, we had a real monster, a man called Eugene de Kock, who was a sort of one of the top secret agents of apartheid. And his speciality was capturing guerrillas and turning them against the movement um, through use of their family, bringing their family in, torturing them, getting them to, uh, to turn. And then they would go, they're the agents of the regime and causing utter destruction because people trusted them because they had some reputation. Uh, I can't describe the terrible things that happened, but Eugene de Kock, uh was the person who plotted uh, to spread cholera among black uh, population, every kind of disease. He came up with the idea of uh, putting, making T-shirts with uh, liberation slogans on them and then putting poison into the fabric. And how many kids died from putting on those T-shirts? Now, this man has, was sentenced eventually because he never confessed. He was sentenced to 112 years in prison. But I've just learned a few weeks ago, he's been released from prison, put in a house and given a, a, a fat pension and able to live out his life. I think he wants to now practice as a doctor again. Imagine that. Uh, they called him Dr. Death. Uh, and there he is. So I think the message is when there's time for reconciliation and, and people are saying, well, let's try and get unity out of this. We've got to have our eyes wide open because Things happen which are really not in the people's interest, or certainly not in the 
interests of justice. And I think we need to to have those our eyes wide open when we when we have these uh, you know these points of existence. Things are complicated. On the other hand, you know sometimes we we make fools of. I still can't believe that no one got those guys. That killed Steve. Uh, it's beyond my imagination. Well, here in the United States, we have great difficulty in punishing uh, police officers for crimes against citizens. It's it's just very rare uh, that a police officer uh, gets the punishment he or she deserves for crimes they commit. So uh, so that's something that we're still working on. Uh. But, so, uh, you know, I mean, murder's murder. You know, I've served in, uh, because I had to. Every white boy had to turn up for the army or you'd put, be put in prison. So I, I did my, my time in the, in the army. But, you know, we were, the rules of the army that you were not meant to uh, shoot unless there was due cause. That there were tight regulations over all this. But when there was an uprising in 1976 and black kids went out in the street, it was mayhem. It was a riot by the police. The police just opened fire with semi-automatic rifles at kids who were throwing stones. I mean, unbelievable. In other words, one side breaks every rule in the book and gets away literally with murder right there. And then there's, you know, the population still suffering. People are still suffering the wounds of the struggle in 1976 when they've been paralyzed because of the bullets hitting them and so forth. And there's no confrontation. So, you folks, know, uh, we're, we're talking to David Hempson. The established order and resistance. So, folks, we're talking to David Hempson, uh, who's uh, born and raised in the Republic of South Africa and living in the United States now, and he's sharing with us what it was like to be raised under uh, apartheid and the struggles that uh, uh, went on to uh, defeat apartheid. So, uh, David... Uh, after a certain point, uh, uh, after all this tragedy, you started working with uh, labor. And how did that come about? <laughs> well, it was interesting. You see, uh, let me go back to Steve. This is before Steve was uh, assassinated. Um, you know, there were a difference in, uh, let's say, between black and white students. Personally, I'm ashamed, you know, what the... Uh, our, our, Student leaders. Some of them were quite inspired. I mean, we were not uh, we were not chickens. We were prepared to take a meeting and and so forth in the organising demonstration. But you see, it wasn't easy to have black and white uniting against the budget. It was tough. And Steve, uh, rationally, he thought it all through, and he and uh, he started the South African Students Organisation, also, which uh, you know broke away from the national. Group, which was the white-led uh, student movement, um, and basically when that happened, and I used to discuss it a lot with Steve and with the white uh, student leaders, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe we students have not got it, and I, I, I went through, I would say crisis, but I was rethinking and rethinking, how, how are we going to change the system, and then it occurred to me, well, obviously it should have occurred to me right earlier, or all of us, that basically the base of society, the basis on which everyone had something to eat, 
that we had trade through our harbour in Durban and that we had a growing economy was the workers. They were black working class people that I'd meet every day and talk to in some way or other and that these guys were being ill paid and yet very productive uh, workers. Um, we were having records, uh, breaking records in mine shaft sinking, you know, digging mine shafts which were a mile deep or even two miles deep in record time, people throwing their lives into the work. And then it would be finished, it would mean, let's say, being given 18 months to be able to dig a shaft and then it would be finished within six months. Unbelievable profits for the mining industry. But that is the quality and the dedication of workers. Now, who was getting the profits out of this? Well, you know where that money was going. It was Anglo-American company, Anglo-American. In other words, English and American capital uh, bringing into the mining industry. So, you know, we were aware of this, that, you know, the money was being made in South Africa, you know, kept the uh, gold price low, kept raw materials low, and be feeding the international finance and capitalist system. Uh, you know, but that was a kind of broad awareness. How can you change that? Well, maybe we got to start talking. I've talked to my friends that we need to go and, and meet black workers. And they said, well, the guys will not want to talk to us. They'll think we're just white sellouts and, <laughs> and all that. So we, you know, we went down to the working class area of Durban. Uh, where they used to have a big abattoir of them, where they would slaughter cattle. And uh, they had a big deer hall there. Um, the Uchwala, which is the uh, African beer. It's thick beer. It's made, you can still got the corn in the beer. And um, we went down and, and saw the uh, guy sitting there, and they looked at us, and they said, hey, sit down and drink with us. So we did, and I started talking, and I said, you know, we wanted to meet workers and be able to organize and see if, you know, the student movement had gone that far, but then we got stuck. And we wanted to talk to people who were actually doing the work and building the wealth of society. And uh, he looked at me, one of the guys looked at me skeptically, and he got uh, one of the younger men coming in. He said, look, he's got the English, and so he'll do the translation. And then I asked, well, look, let's translate what, you know, the workers are saying. And what they said to me was, where have you been? <laughs> where have you been? We've wanted you all this time. We wanted to organize. Look at our hands. We're using knives to to cut the uh, skins you know, off, off the cattle. We have to cut that. And when we cut our fingers, we are fine. We are not given workmen's compensation. But when we cut the skins, we are fired. So please help us there. And so instead of finding that there was hostility and let's say recrimination from uh, black workers, we found, well, kind of warm embrace, a big hug. And, and, the, and the idea was, well, look, if you can organize under this regime and you can help us keep our heads down because they're not going to let us organize openly, but at least do something, let's do it. So we ended up working with uh, some people in the labor movement, some marvelous people, and we set up a benefit fund because trade unions, they thought, would immediately get the police on us and we'd all be arrested. So we started a benefit 
funeral benefits. And I thought, whoa, why are we providing funeral benefits? But that's what people wanted. They wanted to have dignity when they died and to be able to have their families around and to be able to celebrate their lives. So we did that. And then that fund grew into tens of thousands and became quite strong. And then out of the discussions we had with the workers, they said, okay, we're ready to go for the unions. But some workers were not ready because they felt no will all end in prison. So it was quite a debate. But in the end, the police resolved the problem for us because they said, this is an illegal organization. <laughs> they got some court order against us that we had to wind up the fund because we didn't employ actuaries, which would have cost us maybe $100,000 or something to be able to prove exactly how many people would die in the industry and so forth. So we then had a mass meeting, and we said, workers, we'll return all this cash to you, or we could build a union. What do we do? And the workers said, go for it, we'll build a union. Immediately, we could buy uh, combis, that is the VW combis at the time, transport uh, the workers to meetings and so forth. So, you know, things were moving. And then we had the most amazing uh, set of strikes. I, I, we, oh, I didn't quite understand how quickly things would move. Uh, and I was not in Durban at the time, but I got a call when I was at a conference giving a, a paper because I was an aspiring academic at the time. And they said, you've got to come on the phone now. You've got to leave this conference immediately. And I rang up, you know, when I got on the phone, they said, every factory is out. It's unbelievable. People are marching up and down the streets. And I said, what's happening? Are the police shooting? They said, no, the police are paralyzed. They can't shoot. It's right in the city. And they're marching right in the center of town. You will not believe it. But we got in, we traveled all through the night and came to the textile factories where I was organizing. And there the women were all standing outside and saying, before the Mali, Mali, before the Mali. In other words, we've had no money to eat. We've got to get double our salaries. So we were negotiated there. We organized uh, some of the other workers at a place called Smith and Nephew, which was the bandage company. And we, all the workers were out in the streets. The security police, you know, we had security police were coming, running around, trying to take pictures of us and, and all the rest of it. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, we went into Durban, into the, into, the, uh, into the dockyards and so forth. The workers were just cheering, shouting. It was the happiest thing. You would, it wasn't anger. It was just, it was amazing. When they did a survey at that time of white people, 80% of the white people said at this time that black people had a decent wage. In other words, all this complete uh, paralysis of society with nothing could change. Everything could change when the workers started to move. And it was a joyful time. I mean, people were coming and shaking hands. The security police were going to the factories trying to get evidence against what we were doing. They went into one of the factories, a furniture factory, and they started coughing and spluttering. They didn't know all the chemicals that are being used in the factory. And they said, what's happening? Is there something gone wrong? And the workers said, no. This is how we live every day, breathing in these fumes. Don't you know what it's like? Well, they didn't want to stay. They went and stood outside watching to see, you know, what would happen among the workers. So we had black, black workers moving. 
we had a large number of Indian workers in Durban. They joined in as well. And even sections of the white working class, although they were privileged and earned a lot more, respected that strike and stood to one side and didn't scan. So it was quite a, an astonishing time, a time of great joy and celebration, because we knew that we could break the dam. The dam of apartheid could burst. If we could get the base of society moving, and moving in a coherent way with good, clear demands, doubling, immediately doubling salaries, getting rid of the contract labor system where workers are kept in military-like compounds, demanding that they could bring their families into the town, which had been denied to them, and end this horrific uh, cheap labor system. So, you know, 70s were a great time, and we built the union. Folks, you've been listening to our guest, David Hempson, uh, uh, born and raised in the Republic of South Africa. This is On the Edge with K.A. Owens.